0: Sun Tzu, the Chinese strategist, tells us that strategy without tactics is the slowest route to victory, but tactics without strategy is just noise before defeat. My name's Jim Molan and welcome to our Noise Before Defeat podcast.
1: Welcome back, everyone, to the Noise Before Defeat podcast with Senator Jim Molan. This is our second episode of a six-part series, and today the Senator will be exploring the possibility of and Australia's preparedness for a modern war. Senator, can you start off by giving us an introduction to the landscape here so we can understand Australia's history with war and the background to our conversation today?
0: Sarah, hi. Yes, I I can do that. And the first point is that the 20th century is commonly referred to as a slaughterhouse. World wars, regional wars, small wars, and the Cold War. Really, this is what we call industrial age war. And we should never forget that in World War I, 15 million people died. And in World War II, 60 to 80 million people died. In the Korean War, 5 million people died. In Vietnam, at least 2 million people died. Mm. In the Iran-Iraq War of the 80s, 70s and 80s, 1 million people died. In Syria, recently, about 500,000 people have died. And, and in Iraq, 150,000 people died in the invasion and the stability operations that I was involved in before, of course, ISIS came into the equation. So who knows how many people have died in Yemen, in African wars and in parts of the old UWSR. And most of that was in the 20th century. The 21st century has started similarly. War hasn't touched Australia recently for 75 years, except personally for those that went away to fight distant wars. Wars were a long way from Australia and were considered by the Australian military that it was their wars, not society's wars, the military's wars. So Australian society didn't play much of a role in it. Mm. It was hardly noticeable to most Australians. A bit of terrorism here and there, a bit of nation building such as in East Timor, a bit of police action such as in the Solomon Islands. And really the only exception where society became involved was firstly paying for it, But secondly, protesting wars or national service, and most people were then involved. So every war that we've fought as Australians, certainly in my lifetime, but also since 1945, has been, as I said before, this idea of a war of choice, where you choose everything when you go, and particularly when you come home. In those kind of wars, we haven't been committed to victory, just to participate. That's why we went to Iraq and Afghanistan, not to win the war, but to participate. And this is 75 years of military experience. And as I said in the last episode, the opposite are wars of commitment, where there are big issues at stake. We have to win. And we have not fought one of those since 1945.
1: So it has then been quite some time since Australia last faced a war of commitment, but looking at our performance in both World War One and World War II, some would say we actually fared quite well when put to the test.
0: Well, there's a dangerous belief, dangerous because it leads to complacency and arrogance. There's a dangerous belief that because we were on the winning side in World War One and World War II, we Australians must be good at war. <laughs> and when you look at the history You know, from a stumbling start in both wars, our military fought brilliantly, but we've not been prepared for any war that we've fought in. It took us years to get prepared for the big ones, and we prepared mostly after they had started. We don't have that luxury anymore. And the lack of national preparation by Australian governments over the last 100 plus years was paid for in the lives and the freedom of our soldiers and almost in the occupation of this country by Japan in World War Two.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting distinction between coping well with a given situation and yet still having been largely unprepared for it. And I guess you could see that as lulling us into a bit of a sense of complacency. But isn't there also the fact that it has been, you know, 75 years since we last saw a major war? Couldn't you also respond that major wars are a bit of a thing of the past now and will only need to face smaller conflicts moving forward? I think it's a very widespread feeling among Australians, and I definitely have found myself feeling this way, that we're quite insulated from global conflicts and their flow and effects, geographically primarily, of course, but also politically. What would you say on that?
0: I think that's quite true, but nothing could be further from the truth. We just haven't seen a major war for 75 years. And this is really an extraordinary achievement of the last 75 years in national security is that across the war we've avoided, across the world I should say, we have avoided major hot wars, world wars, wars between major coalitions or major nations. The Cold War was an example of avoiding the hot wars. Mm. And the reason that we've done this really comes down to US dominance and mainly by the fact that, that strength deters. So if you can be big and ugly enough and strong enough, you can stop people acting in a way which is aggressive. Mm. It's not just actual regional wars or major wars that will impact terribly on Australia. It's also that high level of tension that normally occurs short of a major war. And this could drastically impact Australia. And I remember one example of this is that in the early 2000s in Israel, Hezbollah fired two Iranian anti-ship missiles at an Israeli patrol craft off the coast of of, uh, Lebanon. One of them hit the patrol uh, craft. The other one was diverted by the electronic warfare on the patrol craft. It went over the horizon and hit a cargo ship which had just left the port of Haifa. Now, as a result of that, not one single ship moved in and out of Israel for over a month. Why? Not because of the missiles, but because those ships could no longer get insurance. Yeah. So, should there be a problem in our part of the world, then immediately everything that's go- that's coming from other parts of the world—our pharmaceuticals, our, our fertilizer, our crude or our refined petroleum products—would stop.
1: And so, as we discussed in the last episode, I guess the common view that we can solve problems of national security simply by funding defence doesn't really address all these additional possible scenarios.
0: Well, yes, the ADF, as I cannot stress enough, is not responsible for national security. The whole nation is responsible for national security. It's an important point to make, and I need to make it as often as I can, because we in Australia tend to think that if you fund the ADF, then the ADF will take care of national security. We might still have to participate in the small wars that we have been participating for years, but the probability of a major war is increasing significantly and we must prepare.
1: And the other thing is that the world has become a completely different place in the 75 years since the last major war. So regardless of how we performed then, I guess things are very different now. What do you think modern warfare would look like now and how different would the impact be to prior major wars that we've faced who do you think it would be between, what kind of attacks, you know, also bringing in a digital element that has never been there before.
0: Uh, Yes, and the digital aspect of this is very, very important. Everything that we use cyberspace for enables us to live the modern life, uh, to transfer money between banks and to organise our nation in an incredible way. It also allows us to fight better, to have greater information and pass data from one organisation to another. But cyber war is never an alternative to what we call kinetic war. Kinetic war is fundamentally blowing things up. Mm. It's not an alternative. I just need to make that point first up because a lot of people say, well, you know, wars nowadays will be cyber wars. They'll be digital wars and we're not going to go around killing people. Well, as I say often, nothing could be further from the truth.
1: So then what do you envision might happen?
0: Well, China and the United States rehearse fighting each other each and every day, billions are spent on preparing for war on each side. God knows what China spends. There is no way of telling. But each year, the US spends $750 billion on defence. Now, you know, as, as, as we discussed previously, that's an extraordinary amount of money. And they do it because they believe that they have to do it. Their interests are, are sustained by being militarily strong. So anything is possible in relation to modern warfare, but the one thing we can be sure of is that the world will never be the same again after another major war. You know, no war between the United States and China, which is what I focus on, will be clean. It will also not be limited to only those two countries. It won't be limited to battlefields politely away from civilian centres. It will be massively violent and destructive and may even go nuclear. It will involve massive cyber attacks that will close down modern nations. We've seen examples of that particularly in the Baltics out of Russia. It will involve attacks in space on an adversary systems and perhaps it will involve attacks on targets on the earth from space. So I think, Sarah, that the war may be short and sharp and someone may win and someone may lose. There may be a high technology fight, which is won or lost, or combatants after maybe a month of very high technology warfare may back off in a stalemate. Both participants in the war uh, would suffer a great loss and great hate for each other for the next Indefinite period of time for ah. 50 years or more. It would be mm. appalling. Such a war may involve one cataclysmic battle or might be a series of lesser battles and attacks, and the fighting may be extended, but with breaks to recover and re-equip and move forces. So all of these options, this is why I say that what we face is a terribly uncertain future. And if, you're, if you have an uncertain future, you must prepare as much as you can for what you do know. Such a war mightn't just between, be between China and the US. It may be between China, Russia, Iran and North Korea on one side, and on the other side, it might be the US and its allies, perhaps what we call the ABCA nations, America, Britain, Canada and Australia and New Zealand, Uh, plus perhaps Japan, South Korea and Taiwan and who really knows who else Uh, And as I said before, it may even be a massive nuclear war, such as might have occurred between the United States and Russia for 50 years after 1945. It might involve the use of tactical nuclear weapons at the local level, even without a massive mutual nuclear attack. So it's an appalling circumstances. And really, as someone who has served with the United States in war and trained with them and knows them relatively well, it's my view that the United States will not muck around when national interest or national survival is at stake. The United States understands the place that violence occupies in war and will apply it to the maximum if their critical interests or existence is challenged. And how depressing is all of that? (laughs)
1: Not the brightest news I've heard, but important to confront nonetheless when there are real risks that may eventuate. You've also spoken about the impact of periods of tension before open conflict. Talk us through the potential impact on Australians of that kind of build-up period to conflict, if in fact we're not already there.
0: And, and yes, that's a that's a very good point in that we might be in the middle of, of a build-up for war now. And it's not just open war, as I said before, that will impact on Australia. The, this kind of period of tension leading up to wars will really make COVID look like a picnic. And how depressing, again, is that to even think of that? What I reckon is likely to happen in a period of tension short of open warfare is nations that might normally export critical items to Australia may cease to send them to us because of their perception of their own uncertain domestic need, exactly what happened during COVID. Mm. Uh, in this period of tension, there might be limited local aggression, even conflicts such as border incidents or the settling of old scores. You know, we, we've seen changes in the nature in Hong Kong and Taiwan, pressure on Taiwan, incredible pressure on Japan, the Indian border dispute and minor disputes against between China and Bhutan. There is a characteristic in this period of tension of nations ignoring the rule of law and examples of that we've seen are intimidation and violence against neighbours in sea border disputes over what the Chinese call their nine-dash-line justification. We also see in this period of tension attempts to influence internal politics. We saw a New South Wales Upper House member, uh, Mr Musulmane, in New South Wales being investigated by ASIO and AFP raids, and and it's alleged that he may have have been the subject of influence, and we'll let that run its course. We've seen the Belt and Road Initiative in Victoria used by uh, a state government And all of this diminishes trust Mm. in our national institutions because of the fear of foreign influence. We will see in this period of tension trade used as a weapon, and we've seen that towards Australia now in relation to beef, wine and barley. We will also see incredibly in this 21st century period of tension the manoeuvring of offensive devices in space with a view to later destroying enemy satellites, or even at some stage, uh, attacks on us from space. We've seen diplomatic hostage-taking Australian citizens in Iran and in China. Uh, We've seen very aggressive language, not quite diplomatic, by the wolf warriors, calling us white trash, and that's not unusual, of course, as we all know. Mm. We've seen in this period the forming of threatening alliances, you know, we, I speak. I speak often about the American assessment of the threats to liberal democracy being four nations and an ideology. And those four nations could, for convenience, come together in some way. We're seeing China and Russia work together with Iran, for example, to overcome United Nations embargoes on arms shipments to Iran, uh, and and that is very very worrying. We'll see gathering of information. Uh, intellectual property theft, such as we've seen with the Thousand Talents Program, and we'll see espionage. Most people in Australia don't know that the FBI are currently investigating 2,000 active counterintelligence cases involving Chinese espionage in the United States now, mm. and they've even closed down Chinese consulates for spying. Uh, we will see the gaining of control of the United Nations body. And I spoke before about uh, how... Uh, coalitions of nations have stopped U.S. attempts to extend the arms embargo to Iran and then supplying Iran with those arms. And finally, there'll be an increase in direct threats and building up force capability. And we've seen that against the U.S., incredible threats only, only, you know, in the immediate past against the United States, saying that if you locate troops, U.S. troops on Taiwan, that China will go to war with you. We've seen continuous threats against Taiwan and military manoeuvring all around, uh, threats against Japan, uh, conflict against India and Chinese nuclear capability is being increased. Now, none of this is purely military, but perhaps it is a time for a bit of healthy and constructive paranoia. Uh, And perhaps, as you say, we're well into our period of tension before war commences. And I'd certainly agree that I and many strategists and commentators are now saying this.
1: Well, I wouldn't blame anyone for finding this idea of a major modern war quite a scary or confronting thought, but why do you think it's so important for us to understand this possibility? What do you think we can do in the face of the risk of this kind of modern warfare? Are we arming ourselves or are we sort of trying to avoid it altogether?
0: Uh, I don't think we can ever avoid it. As a very famous Russian leader once said, if you tell me you're not interested in war, then war is interested in you. And I think Australians are developing that healthy paranoia I was talking about, and they want action. I see that almost every day of the week. We need to prevent modern warfare by being strong, and that's what deterrence is all about, and that's what the feel out there is. Intuitively, Australians understand that being strong prevents war and the war that I'm most concerned about is one between the United States and China as I've been discussing. We can't prevent that war. We may decide that it's in our interests to even participate in it and support our great and powerful friend the United States but we must always understand that our nation and our armed forces must as their very first responsibility, be prepared to defend this nation at home. And we cannot at the moment both support our allies effectively or defend this nation from Australia at the moment. If that becomes a military strategy, that is, we must be able to support allies and defend our nation, we need to build a far bigger military and a far more self-reliant nation with real resilience. So what our priority should be is to increase the level of resilience of this nation and to defend the homeland against what I call a collateral attack, a collateral attack from China uh, in a war between the United States and China. Collateral really means a secondary attack, not the main attack. So, you know, we're unlikely to ever face the might of China by ourselves, but we may have to prepare for attacks into our nation and the impacts of total trade breakdown caused by war. And, you know, without considering a major war, a major invasion, they are big enough. And the question we've got to ask ourselves is, are we self-reliant enough? The answer is no. And that is what our nationwide strategy should concentrate on.
1: So in terms of that healthy paranoia and actually translating this into a probability that we can understand, what do you actually think the likelihood is of such a war?
0: That's an enormous question. And such a war (laughs) has been possible for a decade or so. And and there are many indications that it's now moving from possible to likely. Mm. And you can't be any more precise than that. But even if the probability was 1%, one in 100 chance of going to war, the consequences mean that we must prepare. We must prepare.
1: Well, that leaves the next question then as when might this actually occur? How far away do you think it actually is?
0: Uh, By my assessment, China might be ready in the next two to three years, a maximum of five years. China might also be seeing that its chance to achieve anything militarily might in the next five years be less because the US and its allies are likely to get stronger when might we be ready? In my view, it will take us in Australia five to 10 years to get past COVID, restart the economy, and then start building resilience in this nation. Even if we started the intellectual parts of it, that is the deciding on what our strategy is going to be, even if we started that tomorrow, it would still take us five years best, 10 years probable. So we are well behind where we should be.
1: Well, that certainly leaves us with a lot to get going with. And as you mentioned, there's some intellectual planning that needs to happen first before any practical preparations can happen. But in both of those senses, what are the actual options for us?
0: Yes, and and, and this is what strategy comes down to. Strategy comes down in the end to asking the question that you've just asked. There is only one really And I don't think that then qualifies it as an option, but (laughs) there is only one course of action and it lies at the basis of any strategy. And that is that Australia must be strong. It must be strong enough to deter this collateral attack that I speak about on the mainland and also to allow us at the same time to assist our allies. So that implies under this course of action, two tasks for the nation. We must be strong enough to support our allies and not be a burden on them. And we must be strong enough to give our people confidence that we can face a future that has not only conflict but war and that we can secure the mainland, secure their home. So currently our nation has vulnerabilities a mile high in that we're not self-reliant enough and our armed forces lack lethality, mass and sustainability. And what that means is that We don't have enough fighting power in our military. We're too small and we lack the backup to fight for very long.
1: And so in practical terms, what do you think building that strength and resilience actually looks like?
0: And they are exactly the questions that a strategy has got to answer. And we do not have such a nationwide strategy, as I've said time and time again. We don't have a strategy to defend our sovereignty as a nation by becoming self-reliant and increasing the resilience of the nation. But the objective of that strategy should be a self-reliant nation that secures its sovereignty by being prepared. And anything I say in greater detail is just my opinion. What I do say all the time is that only the government can really come up with the overall strategy. The government has all the resources, resources of intelligence, of organisation, of knowledgeable and smart people to come up with it. What I can say is we need to be far stronger in our manufacturing base and in critical areas within that base. We need to be truly self-reliant in what we need if we are cut off from supply chains across the world, as will happen during tension and then during actual war. And as we've seen, of course, most recently in COVID, and our military needs to be strong enough to both contribute to a coalition force as well as protect the nation against the kind of attack that might be directed towards us. And we're nowhere near that at the moment. You know, we could be brought to our knees far too easily by a lack of liquid fuel, Mm. a lack of broad-based manufacturing, and by a lack of reserves of military spare parts and missiles. So we're not just anything like being resilient and we need to be self-reliant.
1: But Senator, what if deterrence fails? What if we don't build up the strength and resilience that we need and we do end up being drawn into a major conflict?
0: Uh, yes. And, and, and this is the question. And as I say, we're not going to face a major attack, in my view, from the People's Liberation Army directly towards Australia, where they can put all their, their their power onto us. As I say, the biggest threat that I believe we face in a military sense, which then drives everything else that the nation must do, is a collateral attack, a much smaller attack, possibly a missile attack on this nation Uh, from China as part of a big war between China and the United States and at the moment we're severely deficient because of the vulnerabilities I've spoken about in this and the previous uh, podcast and we will remain so over the next few years despite the very good defence strategy update that the Prime Minister has given us and 270 billion dollars allocated to the ADF for equipment over the next 10 years. The essence though of deterrence is that you must be able to win. There's no point saying, I want to deter a particular action and I deter it through hope. No, (laughs) you must be able to uh, make the cost of someone taking an aggressive action against you so high that they just won't do it. And that's what we should aim for. And our vulnerabilities can be overcome if we start with a strategy, then understand what our real risks are, and then act to overcome those vulnerabilities. And it's not rocket science. And we can do it. Australia can do it. We just need to start with a national security strategy.
1: <laughs> yes, I think we're all coming to understand the role that strategy needs to play here, and you've given us a lot to think about and reflect on. I'd be really interested to explore in more detail what our strengths and vulnerabilities currently are as a nation. So that is exactly what we will be chatting about next time. If you did enjoy listening along, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and recommend it to a friend. For further information on the topics we covered today or to To learn more about the senator's plan for a national security strategy, please visit his website, jimmolan.com.